Hey friends, on the uh, the day after, well, the day we're recording is the day after the summer solstice, uh, Michael Martin in our diocese, we are under the patronage of St. John Fisher, who's, uh, whose day is today, so it was kind of a solemnity, yeah, I was English at Mass here. with the bishop, yep, yeah. and uh, I guess that what I didn't know until this morning is that, you know, he, he took his name from John the Baptist, but that um, it's pretty cool that his birthday too. He had such an identity with John the Baptist. He chose that also, which is going to tie into our guest's um, work today. You know, both of them, John the Baptist and St. John Fisher had run-ins with the uh, powers of state and things didn't necessarily end well. Anyhow, and I just thought it was fun that because of John the Baptist, St. John Fisher, and the day after the summer solstice, I, I think all those things kind of vibe with each other. And two days before St. John's Day. Yeah. Right? You might have heard I left my parish. I was running the local parish um, and I'm I'm working with the diocese now. But right before I left, I got these two people just to have on their property way off in the woods, a huge bonfire Saturday night. So it's going to go on a parish event for St. John's Day. Um, yeah, so we're we're going to do, do an equally huge thing for Michaelmas. Uh, our guest today is Bill Cavanaugh. And many people will know his name. Um, his work aligns pretty well with uh uh, a friend we had on the podcast recently, Eugene McCarraher. And Bill, um, I think one thing I want to say about you is, well, how we met is um, a friend of mine, We, our town, our little college, SUNY Geneseo, had one theological lecture a year. And it was an ecumenical committee. That doing things by committee is always tricky, but we'd have to agree on a speaker. And it, I always thought it was kind of we did lowest common denominator things. That's kind of what evolved. Well, there was a new Episcopal priest in town, and I hadn't met him, but I knew he was invited to a meeting to talk about that year's uh, lecturer. It was called the McVitie Lecture. And I saw a certain shade of green in his hand as he was walking in, and he was carrying a book, and it had a certain shade of green, a certain shade of green. And then I recognized the book as your um, The Migration of the Holy <laughs> And I thought, I'm going to side with this guy. So sure enough, he was the new guy. Nobody could accuse us of kind of being in cahoots, but he wanted to put your name forward as the lecturer. And I said, sounds great. You know, and, and so we finally got a great speaker and it was Bill Kavanaugh. And I took you to the airport after that fine lecture. We had dinner the night before. After that, Bill, you came to uh, the Abbey of the Genesee because on that lecture, you met one of the monks, Father Isaac, then you'd been up to the Abbey of the Genesee. And then we've also met through a couple of book discussions, like Zoom ones, one of your work, uh, Church as Field Hospital. But I also want to say one more thing about you, Bill, before, if people have read your work and they haven't met you, to read your work uh, in its totality is to think that meeting the author, he would be like, it, oh, in the evening, he'd be hanging around with uh, the people you'd meet in the pages of Dostoevsky's uh, The Possessed or The Devils, um, anarchists. He would have he'd be hanging around with people whose names are like Pyotr uh, Trofimovich and Gavrogan uh, <laughs> um, because his work is revolutionary, borderlines on the anarchistic. And yet when you ask Bill and I've again, I've had the pleasure of knowing him several times, like, what are you doing tonight, Bill? Uh, I'm just going to pick up my kids from cross country practice. Uh, I'm going to go to a cross country meet. So, uh, Bill, your your work is very, very, very revolutionary, always has been. And I think your demeanor somehow hides that a little bit and it probably works to get your 
your work out there because it's it's a it's a ticking time bomb in in a wonderful wonderful sense. So welcome, Bill Cavanaugh. Thank you, Mike. That's a really nice way of saying that my work is interesting, but I'm kind of dull, really. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. Um, so, so Bill, you're in. Uh, we're speaking to you. You're in and around Chicago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, you're cool. the author of uh, a number of books. I'm going to try. I think between different offices, I have basically all of them are there. I don't know if I currently have in my possession. Church's Field Hospital, but um, Torture and Eucharist, uh, Being Consumed, um, The Myth of Religious Violence, uh, the, uh, the Migration of the Holy, Church's Field Hospital, probably some other ones in there, and you're working on a book on idolatry that's going to be coming out when? Uh, it should, I should be getting the proofs pretty soon, so it should be out by the fall. Very exciting, very exciting. I, I kind of want to begin, Bill, by, um, I, you know, we're not going to stay on a strict chronology of your work. But um, last week we were, and it'll be posted soon. We were talking with um, our friend Guido Preparata, who used to teach at the Gregorian, and a guy Eric Wilson, who is very brilliant. He's a historian, studied at Cambridge, but he really trying to get into, you know, how how mafias work, um, where political murder is used, and why people use it, what its results are, and um, you know, when in the discussion, Michael, you remember this, you know that. Um, David Hume wrote an essay called like, you know, the myth of the original contract or the, you know, or the social, social contract, contract that we create these kind of beginnings that, you know, are formed in myth. And we think it started there. But, you know, we're all kind of coming to the conclusion that like corruption has been, you know, warped in the government from the get go. Mm. But um, your book, Torture in Eucharist, let me say two things. One is your your work is it could be it could be a three year series in itself on the bishops move towards um, the Eucharistic revival. Eucharist features, uh, Bill and I were just talking to that prior to coming on air, but like you're doing something really important in all of your works. It's in the title of Torture and Eucharist. It's there definitely in being consumed, but you're, you have, you, you do really neat things with ecclesiology, but in Torture and Eucharist, you set up kind of two counter structures and with the incarnation with Jesus coming into this world, we have a different way of being, you know, and um, can you kind of describe what you're doing in torture and Eucharist? Uh, because it's so relevant to the Eucharistic revival and it, it's even going to verge, you know, you'd be the most interesting person to talk to with people like Patrick Deneen now in the post-liberals, you know, it's just a fact. It's just a fact. <laughs> I, describe your thesis in torture and Eucharist as you would say it now. Yeah, so um, it came out of my experience of living in a poor area of Santiago, Chile, uh, in the last years of the military regime in Chile. Uh, and so the two movements of the, so it, it was my, my PhD dissertation, which became my first book. And the two basic movements are torture, which is a way of kind of individualizing, atomizing the body politic, the, the point of the regime was not to get everybody marching together, but rather to individualize everybody. Um, Pinochet brought down uh, Milton Friedman after the coup in 1973 to restructure the whole economy. So based on the idea that it's just a collection of individuals. And so you do away as best you can with intermediary inter, you know, uh, groups like um, political parties and labor unions and so on. 
Um, and so torture is this attempt to get everybody to stay away from one another, to, to put the fear of gathering hmm. into them. Uh, and then Eucharist is this opposite movement of bringing people together into a body. And so that's the, the basic, um, the, the basic uh, contrast in the book, um, how, the, how the church learned to be oppressed and learn to kind of uh, knit the body back together. The church became the, uh, the kind of only place uh, left where, where you could gather uh, in Pinochet's Chile. And so kind of looking at that through the lens of Eucharistic uh, theology. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, especially you see over the last, you know, we went through lockdown and, mis and Easter and Christmas were canceled. And I don't know if you about you, Bill, but I still at well, I still knew, do now, but at the time I had four young younger children in the house. I think my youngest at the time was nine. And it was torture for them. <laughs> it really was torture for them. And they couldn't go to church. Right. So I mean, I think what, what you're saying resonates in with with our experience of that. Cause it was, I mean, I I to this day. You know, I know my two daughters in particular, they're now 20 or almost 20 and, and 18, absolutely traumatized. Yeah, yeah, we're, right. We're not meant to be uh, kept away from each other like that. Right. Um, no, yeah, no. yeah. I have a priest friend who says that torture and Eucharist are the two principal parts of the mass. First, there's the homily, which is torture, and then comes. <laughs> so. You want it ready? Here's, a, here's a, just a rando thing. And I don't know how much it, if the Russian Orthodox Church, I read, and it was from a Russian, that prior to the communist revolution, they, this makes sense. So even if it's, it's not apocryphal, because it wasn't written with that, but they did away with the homily for about a hundred years, like in the early 1800s. And then they needed it again to catechize, I think afterwards. But the rationale was, why do they do something naturally so divisive right before the liturgy of the Eucharist? Isn't that a brilliant insight? Totally brilliant. Totally brilliant. I've always said, get away the homily, you know, for like 20 years. Just, you know, we need more quiet time. Uh, but anyhow, Bill, you know, Mike, Michael's saying something really important. And I was thinking, too, that, um, you know, some people would say towards the end of the Roman Empire, you know, when we're looking at civilizations in decline, we don't have to be too apocalyptic about our own. But it certainly has a lot of the earmarks of decline is that one way of describing what happened is people started, I could say it now, I almost feel more a part of the church, even though the church is going through one of its periodic deaths, than I do maybe as an American citizen, right? So people in the decline of the Roman Empire thought that their identity with the, the Catholic Church just became the more lived, the more real um, identity as the, the other one kind of faded. And, um, you know, this notion of ecclesiology, do you, you know, have you been engaged with these kind of new post-liberals like Deneen and, you know, Gladden Pappen and so forth. And like, what do you say about your, what the case you're making, it's almost, you know, Jesus breaks into history. Jesus can do it again. The church can be there versus this, what I'm taking is almost an imposition on, on top because uh, something we haven't mentioned, Bill, is again, your PhD roots are with John Milbank and, um, you know, people like Stanley Hauras. It's actually and, not with John Mill. I mean, okay, not at all. I'm sorry. I, I read Milbank's book in uh, grad school and that uh, okay. theology and social theory, but uh, didn't meet him until later. Um, okay, gotcha. Didn't study with him. Yeah. How do you see your work vis a vis what the post liberals are doing? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, a, a lot of Deneen's 
criticisms of uh, liberal order, I think, are are right. Um, they're a little bit overgeneralized, maybe, but they're right. But um, I don't see a lot of ecclesiology. He's not a theologian, and I don't see a lot of ecclesiology. And so he has found an attraction in people like Victor Orban, um, and that I find really problematic. Right. So the um, in instead of the church being the kind of primary uh, loyalty that that you're talking about, it's still the nation state, just in a different um, and somewhat more dangerous guise. Uh, and that I that I find uh, difficult. I like Patrick. He um, uh, he and I have crossed paths several times, um, but um, not my. Um, I think we're going in opposite directions at this point. Yeah, and I think what you're doing is much more interesting. I find it much more hopeful. Um, it certainly, it seems to capture from the bottom up, you know, um, it seems to capture the mystical notion of the kingdom of God that was preached as the, the central reality of, uh, you know, the gospel and so forth. But um, do people, do you see more people engaging with this post-liberal thing, working from viewpoints so I think Michael and I would both like to promote like a viewpoint kind of similar to your, do you see other interesting theologians who are taking that on um, with something like what you're, what you're talking about in torture and Eucharist, this kind of lived reality of church? Yeah. I mean, there's the folks in the Ecclesia project okay. that um, I've been close with. I gave a talk uh, last summer on the little way, uh, Dorothy Day and Teresa Lissieux, um, and, um, and they're really interesting folks. And that was kind of created by Mike Buddy and a, a few other people um, maybe 15 years ago as a way of bridging um, academic discourse on these matters with pastors and people in the pews. And so there's a lot of people that are trying to kind of live this out at the parish level. Um, how do we regard our primary loyalty as being to Jesus and resist the idolatries of uh, primarily the the nation and the market, uh, and so there's a lot of a lot of hopeful stuff that's going on in the at, at the grassroots. The Ecclesia Project, with uh, with two Ks. Um, if anybody wants to look that up on, mm -hmm. online, a lot of good. I'll, I'll certainly link to it in the in yeah. the uh, the description. Who's who are the figureheads of the Ecclesia Project? I guess I've heard the name. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know. That's why I was I was asking you a question like, where do we turn to for other models than this one? You know, we see through the problems of the nation state. You know, nobody's more hard hitting than you, but the answer isn't just a different form of this kind of top down oppression. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. These are really interesting folks. I would really recommend um, okay. uh, looking them up. And so it's a it's a network, a kind of loose network um, of uh, it's very ecumenical. It's Catholics and Protestants, um, but it was founded by Michael Buddy. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I've seen the name. My friend and colleague Michael Buddy, but he's my colleague here at DePaul and a good friend, uh, Catholic political scientist, um, and he writes. He just had a book come out last year called "Foolishness to the Gentiles," which is a lot about. Christian formation as opposed to the kind of formation that we get from uh, from the nation state. So yeah. uh, always a, a, a bracing read. 
I, I, I was reading it recently and I just said to my wife, why nobody out pessimists, Mike Buddy? <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd like so, him, wouldn't we, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> you would definitely like Mike Buddy. You should have him on your podcast. Actually. Oh, definitely he's, will. Definitely he's will. He's awesome. He's really great. I'm glad to hear there's people out there like it. I'm, I'm just kind of embarrassed of myself that not, I've heard the name, but haven't, you know, uh, I was just kind of revisiting your work that, you know, it was only a couple of weeks ago that the, uh, you know, Deneen's new book, I guess it's just putting it straight there. Like, this is what we're about. It's Orban and so forth. We knew that's where they were leading, Yeah. but I'm as uncomfortable as you are. And uh, so, you know, worth the price of admission already, Bill, for coming on the podcast. <laughs> Michael, you've engaged with Bill's work over the years. What would be some of the... Um, well, let me... Uh, when, when was it? When I was working on the submerged reality... What year did what year did migrations of the holy come out? Oh, maybe 20, uh, 10, 11, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So people were were pointing me to your work, which is when I first picked it up back then, because the 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 sacramental view you you point to is is the key to reality in there. I think it's important. But we when, when I'm thinking about now hearing you talk, I mean, um in this, when you talk about the Ecclesia project, I mean so the question I have been struggling with, actually, for, the, for a while now, is what is the church? You know, because and when, as you're talking, I'm I'm hearing also in my head, and I'm sure Mike was too, our buddy Guido Preparata, who's got a forthcoming book, Church and Empire, which is a book about precisely not the not. Uh, I don't know what to call the church, but the, the Catholic hierarchy's complicity in the, the world order, right? At times, right? So, so let me ask you that. So, how would you define the church? Yeah, um, it's the body of Christ um, with uh, a lot of very sinful members, right? Um, so, when I talk about the church, I don't primarily mean uh, the bishops. Right. Um, in but, but that's what people think about it right away, right? <laughs> that is right, and that's yeah, exactly. Is. You know, that's that's what we've been that's what we've been taught to to think of when we think of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to take a more Vatican II kind of view of it, and so when we talk about the church, we mean us, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, we who have been called into uh, this body and um, need to make the, the, the most of it from the, you know, from the, from the bottom to the, to the top of the, uh, of the hierarchy, right? Um, I, I mean, I, I think Pope Francis has tried to emphasize this uh, a kind of decentralization of the church. And for most of the church's history, it was a lot more decentralized than it is now, right? I mean, at the beginning of the 19th century, only a, a handful of bishops around the world were directly appointed by the Pope. And by the end of the 19th century, they all were, right? So there's been this tremendous kind of centralization uh, in the church. And I think Pope Francis uh, is uh, trying to kind of call us to a more decentralized um, uh, view on that. And people like, you know, lay lay saints like Dorothy Day, I think that's what um, that was, uh, her version of personalism, right? Don't look for somebody else to do it. Do it yourself. Exactly. Don't don't complain about the church. Go be the church. Right. And you know, I, and I, I was actually driving. I was delivering vegetables today, but, and I was thinking 
you know, about our upcoming discussion. And that was one of the questions that was kind of living in me is, uh, so I remember when I abandoned my career as a Waldorf teacher to, to get a doctorate, part of my, uh, the impulse leading to that was that I could see what, what so this is a long time. So I, I was late to get my doctorate. Um, and, but I could see where things were heading culturally because I can see how, uh, for instance, the work of Judith Butler was so <laughs> insidiously present in academia, right? And I knew, and I knew, well, this is gonna, you know, the end game for this is it's gonna percolate into the culture in a kind of half-baked way, and it's gonna ruin a lot of things, which is what it did, right? Um, <laughs> And so I wanted to be part of the anti that. You know, I did. That was part of it. That was part of my impulse to do it. You know, I think we need T-shirts. That we are yeah. the anti that. I yeah. do. I'm, I'm gonna start you know that thing? That thing? That thing? That thing? against it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it was a failed project. And so, and that's why, since because I don't know if you don't know my story, but Bill, but the the college I was the liberal arts college I was teaching at abruptly closed in 2017 which college is this mary grove college in detroit michigan okay and uh we got our contracts at the end of july and the first week of august they told us the place was closing at the end of the fall semester Oof. oh it was rough but uh but but i you know because of all that but also my experience in academia you know was there was a lot living in me that was saying what good are we doing except for besides talking to each other you know how do and how do we how do we make a difference you know we can talk all you know academics we're all good at talking but how do we actually you know build the kingdom yeah oh i'm sorry is that a question yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's talk this, about that, that some more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it it starts with talking, right? I mean, wasn't that what Dorothy Day said? We were just sitting on that. That's the way she ends the long loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. She said we were all just sitting around talking when you know somebody came in, and the next thing you know, we had a house of hospitality and so on. Mm -hmm. So, um, so nothing wrong with talking. I think it starts uh, with talking, but but I think you're right. Um, we need to kind of do more than that and build bridges. I think this podcast is one way of doing that, right? You know, um, building bridges between academia and um, pastoral work and the kind of uh, things that I, oftentimes in my work, I'm trying to kind of hold up examples of what people are actually doing uh, at the grassroots. And there's a lot of good stuff uh, going on. There's no shortage uh, of that. So um, I think people need to do serious intellectual work. And I'm really glad that, you know, I'm in academia and have the you know, possibility of doing that. Um, but I'm always trying to write for uh, a broader audience and trying to be as clear as I possibly can. Um, I sometimes tell people that I got kicked out of radical orthodoxy for writing too clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. You know what we've uh, I, the first time again when you gave that McVitie lecture, I remember driving you to the airport, and I I'd mentioned that for maybe twenty years I'd just been devouring everything and anything by Ivan Illich, and you started asking about Illich, and I know subsequently you started you know diving deep into him, but I, you know on the church, it's not like he had it figured out, but in in one place he says, and I use it with young people all the time, not to like to disrespect the bishops or anything, but that entity that takes its nourishment from the Eucharist. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. It gets us focused. And the other one is, you know, he has the helpful distinction between, um, as opposed to saying, look, those horrible people over in Rome and us real progressive types who are on the right side of history, you know, he had the church as it and the church as she, but he had a lot of respect for the church as it, this kind of, yes, uh, ossified and necessarily conservative structure. Um, it's like the skeletal system of a human body that without the skeletal system, the ticking time bomb of the gospels, you know, wouldn't have been protected so that they're still here to set off their dynamite every so often. And then the church as she, you know, is that more the fluid more part? And again, I could pull a hair from my head, like the former abbot of the abbey of the Genesee would do in front of students, or take a hair and say, like, where do I end? And there's some mystical notion there. And, uh, you know, I I think all those are, are getting to a, a piece of it, that we, we don't have to be grateful for certain people uh, you know, the other thing I think is in, in Rochester, we had a famous priest, good guy, his name was Jim Callen, and he was a prophetic figure, but he went so far, and then uh, Bishop Matthew Clark had to just kind of separate the church as, you know, being beyond the pale. But um, when I think of Ivan Illich himself, and a hero of mine that we had needed to do a podcast on was uh, Laminet during the French Revolution. Oh. Laminet was with the church, and radical individuals kind of tied to the church is a neat engine. I'm not, I don't want to self-identify as radical. I, you know, that can be very patronizing and so forth, but I don't think, and I'm not necessarily talking about the church as it, Michael, but, you know, I think if I wasn't kind of wedded to an institution that was somewhat inherently conservative, it's just going to move slower, like the skeletal structure, I'd probably be spouting more insane stuff than I already do. I don't even know what I'd be <laughs> thinking, right? I need personally to be somewhat tethered to something like that. Now, Laminet, he was the most read person um catholic writers at that time by far he was a radical he said everything he was singled out in two papal encyclicals saying everything you're teaching is wrong now everything he taught was right but he had to separate himself from the church and he did he did become pretty far out at the end of his life i kind of like that late stage laminate too but um you know when we talk about the church i tend to and you know very influenced by torture and eucharist and being consumed that i tend to go for kind of a lower ecclesiology a more living thing you know as that entity you have house church mike you know you're still part of that entity that takes its nourishment from the eucharist bill mentioned the ecclesia project which i have to look into more it's an ecumenical undertaking you know yeah. but um bill talk talk about how you describe eucharist you know through the lens of your book being consumed you know you're doing something i think better than most people who at christmas time are just talking about Ugh! consumer christmas right it gets very old that's right you're, again you're trying Sales to are down this season <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that was a like many of my books is, is or it was just started as a collection of essays but the first um chapter of that book um it's only 100 pages long the whole book and the first chapter is about um the free the so-called free market what do we mean when we're talking about the free market and so i argue that there's no such thing as the free market uh, as such the, the real question is when is a market free right when is it actually 
contributing to the flourishing of people and when is it not? So you need uh, a criterion of freedom that is um, uh, more substantive than just lack of government interference, or, you know, letting corporations do whatever they want. That real freedom is kind of what, what leads to human flourishing. And so I kind of um, eventually get to uh, talking about consumerism as uh, a kind of false freedom in that sense. It's a sort of detachment from uh, production. It's a detachment from producers. It's a detachment from the products themselves, right? We're, we're we don't make anything ourselves. We are detached from the people who make our stuff, which live, you know, who live on the other side of the world. And we're detached from products too, because we can't get attached to anything. We need to, you know, throw them out and move on, right? We got to mm -hmm. get the next iPhone and, and that sort of thing. And so a kind of rootedness, um, which is based on a different model of consumption is what I'm after. And so I look at the Eucharist as this kind of uh, uh, being consumed by the body of Christ, right? You know, Augustine says, uh, you know, here's the voice of Jesus saying, um, eat of me and you will not assimilate me uh, to your body like the food your body eats, but I will assimilate you to, to my body. And so it's this kind of being sucked up into this larger body of communion uh, with other people that kind of turns the what we usually think of consumption uh, inside out. And so that's um, that's what I'm after uh, in the book. I still think it's great. Like your work is, it's a great, it's a great catechesis for the Eucharistic revival. You know, the era, that idea of being sucked up reminds me of John Zazoulis's definition of the Eucharist as the memory of the future, you yeah. know, yeah, uh, right. which kind of moves in that same direction. You know, all of us kind of yeah. being called up to that thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm wishing, I, I, I'm glad that the bishops are calling attention to the Eucharist, but I'm afraid they're doing it in a sort of one-dimensional way um, and kind of trying to, to renew reverence for the miracle uh, of the presence of uh, Jesus. And, and I think, I mean, I, I believe fully in the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but then the whole question of therefore what and um and how does this make a body not just on the altar but make a body uh, out of the church the mm -hmm. other meanings of the body of christ um that i'm afraid is is being neglected i, I hope i'm proved wrong um what, but, but well, i think that, that, yeah. that points to what you worry is mine yeah michael yeah. what you talked what you mentioned earlier bill with uh you know at the beginning of the 19th century <laughs> The, the bishops were not chosen by the Pope at the end they were or is it the 18th but it's the same it's same kind of thing and, and and I think probably maybe one of the problems we see in the Catholic Church right now is that it's it's so top down and if you go to the Middle Ages and you know my, my doctorates in early modern English literature you go to the Middle Ages and the the, the early modern period and the Corpus Christi, festivals which were one of the most important uh feast days of the year mm -hmm. which is you know we, it goes by we don't even notice anymore but but that was that was something that was from the grassroots up yeah. right yeah yeah i think that's right you know um the pope used to be 
uh, court of last resort, and then over the course of the 19th century became CEO of Church Incorporated. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's the same with the bishops, really, too, that, uh, you know, a, a pastor is, uh, you know, a shepherd uh, doesn't drive the sheep like you drive a car, right? I mean, a shepherd is just there to kind of keep people, keep the sheep from straying and, and protect them from wolves and so on, but the pastor is not meant to, the, the shepherd is not meant to kind of run run things, you know, drive the sheep like you drive a car. Um, and so there's definitely a role for Pope and bishops, but um, but the, the rest of us just need to take the initiative. Uh, and if we stray too far, uh, there's somebody to kind of call us back, but um, but there's a there's a lot of work to be done, and and it's really not the it's not the bishop's job. You're so clear on this stuff. I think it's really awesome. You know, the um, it was I've 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 taken it many times, but I think I've and probably pretended it was my own without clarifying it. But I think I heard it in an Alexander Schmemann talk. You know, but he was just it would I had an old audio cassette. It was something on the Eucharist, and he was just mumbling. He goes, "I don't know of any presence that's not real." You know, so what you know what does the word real add to presence? And that, you know, I just think we're with some, you're very eloquent on it, Bill, because we're not disrespecting it at all. But um, it just feels like they want to add another real on to real presence. You know, that's the catechesis. Like, it's really real. Um, really, really real. Yeah. And I, I thought, so let's keep the word real. But, you know, I've, I've shared with Michael, I like playing them in prayer. I like playing with all those words in my head. Like, how about a real absence? That's pretty cool. Um, and then uh, a, a present real. I kind of like that, too. Um you know, but all these things, but it's just like real presence that that's now it's floated off. It's one of those, you know, say the word shoe a hundred times and the word kind of floats off. Yeah, and right. I think, you know, for so many people, the way it's being used, the real presence in so much of the literature around this Eucharistic revival, which is a good thing, uh, is going to have that same effect on people, you know, and so your work re-embeds it. Um, it gets us out. And again, your work on the nation state, let's start moving there a little bit because, uh, I'm sure you see it, but to an outsider like myself, your work is always of a piece. You know, the uh, people who've read all your work, it's really fascinating to see where you're going. And, you know, we have a goal here, Michael and I, to talk to you today about a lot of your work, then to have you on again, right, when your book on idolatry comes out. But, you know, you kind of move from torture and Eucharist and uh, being consumed was probably even written after the myth of religious violence or no, Bill? Um. Gosh, I can't remember exactly. I mean, it was written uh, piecemeal before, okay. and then I think it came out in English. And no, actually, I think it came out before the myth of religious violence. Yeah. 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 Well, so tell us. You know, you wrote a book called "Because Your Experience: Torture and Eucharist." Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, the myth of religious violence. You know, it's uh, that was the kind of the subject. I think it still might be that basic kind of talk is what you're best known for. You know, um, that uh, kind of give us give us your thumbnail sketch of what you were doing there. But it, it certainly follows organically from your work, Torture and Eucharist, you know, yeah. you're telling the story that's kind of like, um, you know, you're telling an enchantment, disenchantment story. You know, how would you describe that? It actually came out of a, um, a paper that I wrote in grad school. Um, I was taking a political science class and we kept reading it was a, a political theory of liberalism class with Professor Tom Spragans, and we were reading 
Richard Rorty and John Rawls and um, Judith Schlar and all these people that kept saying that the liberalism came out of the wars of religion, uh, where you've got Catholics and Protestants killing each other, and so the state has to come along and you know move the move the Christians to the punishment corner and take over. Um, and it, it it just seemed uh, absurd. I mean, if you look at it, it just even a cursory view of the history, you see that the Thirty Years' War, you know, most of it was Catholic dynasties, you know, the, the Habsburgs versus the Bourbons, you know, fighting it out. So it wasn't Catholic versus Protestants, it was Catholic, Catholic, and so on. So that became a chapter in um, my book, uh, Theopolitical Imagination, and then eventually came and expanded it into this book. But you say that that basic violence. thing, you know, what we call the wars of religion. I think you say there, you know, it's the it's the wars of the burgeoning nation state. But that right. is that is taken axiomatically by everybody. I mean, that is a religion drilled into <laughs> us. You know, you're oh, saying yeah. it's absurd, prima facie absurd, not to ninety nine point nine percent of the people, Bill. I mean, they oh, they've absurd. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah, it's still absolutely. a very radical talk you give. Keep going. It's the it's the, um, it's the Ur myth. It's the Genesis uh story really um of of liberalism of modernity yeah mm -hmm. yeah so um basically um what i do in the book is argue that um people kill for all sorts of things gods but also flags and oil and freedom and the workers revolution and so on and if you look at the history of the term religion uh this religious secular distinction is a modern distinction uh, and and one that applies really only to the West until it gets imposed on the rest of the world uh, through co through colonialism, and basically it comes because it's a way of um, marginalizing the church. The church is about religion, which is inherently dangerous and therefore needs to be privatized. And then there's this other thing called the secular, which is just kind of mundane and this worldly, and that's you know essentially uh peaceful or essentially less violent as um, we can see <laughs> as we can see <laughs> right you know i mean <laughs> yeah it, just like old joe stalin right you know um an atheist regime uh so so in order to make that work you have to do things like what christopher hitchens does where he says oh stalin yeah, even though he was an atheist, that counts as religion too, because totalitarianism. <laughs> right, 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 right. So basically, you just take all all the things you don't like and you put them into the category of religion, and then everything that you do like ends up in the category of the the secular. There was a there was a BBC series, or maybe it was just one or two, because I I haven't checked the numbers lately, but it was on the Inquisition, so it wasn't from a. You know, word on fire institute or something, but I think they were saying through the whole history of the institution, you know, you're more likely to die in the civil courts than you were in the religious courts. And I forget what number they used. They might have said those people who were actually killed might have been like 3,700. And at that point, you could say Obama and Trump killed more with drone strikes alone that were killed in the totality of the Spanish, right? But yeah. some of these numbers, like if we get into body counts, yeah. you know, let's keep updating them. But like the story you're telling is so so important right oh my gosh yeah no like you hear it all the time right the spanish inquisition over the course of 350 years uh between three and five thousand people that's my killed, understanding yeah which is about how many the khmer rouge killed every three days yeah right? yep. so um 
you know, yeah, I mean, the, the, the myths of the, and Jose Casanova actually talks about this too and wonders why it is that um, this myth is so popular in, an, in Europe and other places in an age where it's so unlikely that somebody is, that these kind of battles between Catholics and Protestants are centuries in the past. Mm -hmm. And yet the story lives on today because it's an important story because well, it, you know, justifies certain kinds of arrangements of power. Yeah, it's a kind of Oedipal rage too, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, that's a good point. That's right what now. I think a lot of people do is you know, they, what, for whatever reason, they get mad at daddy church and they, they just dump all this stuff in that direction. And it, and you see that a lot, I don't know if you've seen it, but I see it with a lot of, Young, well, maybe not younger anymore, but they used to be younger Catholic bloggers who are just nuts. <laughs> and they're, it looks like it's like, and I keep telling them when people ask what I think, I said, it's like a giant Oedipal rage thing. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's disturbing. Uh -huh. I mean, they, they still identify as Catholic, but their rage is so, you know, uncontrolled. So over the top. I used to experience the phenomenon. They, like, they, they tend to uh, hate me. But, <laughs> but which ones are you thinking of, Michael, in this case? A lot of them on Patheos. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Aren't they all? I mean, they love, they're, they're just over the, just crazy to me. Yeah, it could be. Like every evil stems from there. You know, well, the, a lot uh, of them, I, and this is, I don't want to talk inside baseball, but I think a lot of them went to uh, Franciscan University. And then kind of reacted against Franciscan. And, and they, yeah, and they're letting it. They're letting it rip. That is kind of a subset. People who kind of broke free of what they saw as a kind of a Steubenville quote. Yeah. And, I mean, cult. And uh, But Bill, you know, you, when you came and gave that talk at uh, Geneseo. But, <laughs> you know, when you say it's still kind of out there, I think the same thing you're trying to explode in the myth of religious violence is something. It wasn't this year, but um, to do campus ministry on a state university is to do the obligatory like panels, like once a semester some club would want all the different faith groups to show up at the college union and they would ask us like our feeling on you know being kind to animals you know and okay mike's a catholic you know what do you think ah, i i think our our uh, our tradition tells us we should probably be pretty kind to animals and the jewish guy says the same thing but um <laughs> and so and i just it was just a, i stopped i had to stop doing them but the um one time it was really great because a, a person upset the apple cart. They they did it the same type of thing they were doing, and it was on all the traditions um, and the use of story. So they had a Buddhist guy, and he kind of told a cone, and then uh, the Jewish guy told a great story from like, uh, oh, like that Martin Buber had related in some story of the Hasids, and uh, uh, a Muslim guy told a great story, and then the Christians were represented that time by a Mennonite. And uh, it's how people are ready for what you're saying, Bill. So the, the guy, the Mennonite guy got up there and he just didn't play according to the rules. He goes, I got a story and it's called the Bible. And the Bible says, unless you believe in Jesus Christ, like you're going to spend a long time in like burning fire and so forth. And the students, so the board of the Interface Center and the college came out. They're running up to every young person, you know, just thinking how their ears and their whole. And every young person <laughs> loved the authenticity. They didn't necessarily believe them. It wasn't uh -huh. the same way I would tell the story as a Christian. Not at all. 
But seeing every young person for whom the baby boomers in this case, and I can single out the baby boomers, not, but they were just there so mortified at what took place. Every young person there was just like, finally, somebody spoke their mind and they were hungry for it, right? Yeah, I'll never yeah. forget. It. I've got a story that's called the Bible. And it <laughs> says this really, really great. So the myth of religious violence, is that still a, a talk you're called upon to give frequently, Bill? Because it's. Uh... Um, yeah, I still I still give it every once in a while. I was just in Norway uh, in December. They had a, um, a conference on religion and violence and they asked me to do the keynote. It was interesting. It's a, a group called the it's like the Council for religions and life stance communities in uh, <laughs> in Norway. Yeah. And so this includes, you know, the humanists and, and uh, lots of uh, people that are not considered generically religious. So that was interesting because they kind of got the point that I'm trying to make, which is that, you know, everybody believes in something. Uh, and so the question don't, Tell me about, you know, believers and unbelievers, you know, everybody believes in something. So the real question is, tell me what you believe in, and I'll tell you what I believe in, and then we can have a conversation and we can do yeah. that without yeah. killing uh, one another. So, um, yeah, so the, the, that was that was useful uh, in that People way. People are waking up to that. The younger generation is waking up to the fact that everybody has a metaphysics, everybody's working from a blueprint, you know, and that's where I think your work, I'm so glad to be kind of as they say, foregrounding it, because I, you know, that the post-liberal option becomes a real one for people, you know, that Orban makes sense, you know, in one sense, when you realize that the language of the naked public square was always something of a conceit. But let's move from the myth of religious violence onto, you know, it's obviously, it's a very easy to follow progression, but it's super important. It's a whole from below apologetics, if you ask me, your body of work to the migration of the holy. So you're telling that story different from Eugene McCarraher and um, uh, before him, in one sense. You're, uh, how do you describe how you want to tell that tale? You mostly focus on the nation state as he focuses on the market, right? Yeah, right. Um, although they're really interrelated, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So the migrations of the holy uh, is a term that I borrowed from the historian John Bossy, who talks about um, the migration of the holy from the church to the, you know, to the, the theater, le, right, <laughs> Leo the or, or Louis the Fourteenth, and so on, uh, you know, um, and so you get this, this, all these kind of liturgies surrounding kings in the early modern period, and so on, and that then just becomes uh, sacrificing for the nation state in the in the modern era. So. Um, uh, that's the story that I've been wanting to tell, um, you know, throughout all, all of my work really, uh, is this idea that um, everybody, uh, worship doesn't just go away in the so-called secular age, but it just migrates to other places. Uh, and, and I focus particularly on the, the state and the market. Um, and that's actually where I'm going um, finally with uh, this book that's coming out now, The Uses of Idolatry. Mm -hmm. I start with um, the novelist David Foster Wallace's quote from his famous uh, commencement address to Kenyon College. Do you know this? Uh, this I do. My yeah. brother-in-law went to Kenyon while he it was oh, the year before right? he gave that talk. Yeah. Oh, 2005. Yeah. yeah. But he says, you know, in the trenches of everyday life, there's no such thing as atheists. Everybody worships. And the reason you might want to worship a god is because everything else you worship will eat you alive. You know, worship your looks and you'll always feel ugly. Worship money and you'll never have enough, et cetera. 
Um, and so that's what I'm uh, looking at in, in a, trying to do work that out in a scholarly way, uh, that inside out um, in this uh, new book, The Uses of Idolatry, uh, it's called. So um, uh, it's, but, but trying to do it sort of sympathetically, right? Not, it's not just a Jeremiah against everybody else as an idolater, everybody except me. Um, but trying to see idolatry critique as a way of sort of leveling the playing field between believers and unbelievers right. called, right? That everybody believes in something. So let's uh, let's just talk about uh, what we believe um, and talk about the things that devour us, right? Everything else will eat you alive. Um, talk about the kind of structures that we've created, uh, especially capitalism and uh, and nationalism. Uh, that are you know human-made structures that are that are eating us uh, eating us alive. So I start off with uh, Max Weber and argue that even he doesn't buy this idea that we live in a disenchanted world, uh, and then um, work my way through Charles Taylor and the Bible and Augustine and uh, Jean Luc Marion and um, nationalism, consumerism, and then the final chapter is on sacrament. As a kind of uh, in, incarnation and sacrament, as an antidote to uh, to idolatry, and I have a, a, actually a little uh, gentle criticism of Gene McCarraher uh, in the final chapter um, because he uh, his antidote is the Romantics, and um, it's a kind of vague idea of the enchantment of the material world. And um, I argue that, you know, if disenchantment is the problem, then that's good enough. But if misenchantment is the problem, as McCarrer says, then, then we've got to talk about what, you know, which divinity. It's not good enough to talk about, you know, investing divinity in material things. The question of which divinity is really important. You know, the Romantics uh, were, you know, the, national, the nationalists in the 19th century were Romantics. Uh, and there's Colin Campbell's book on the, you know, the romantic origins of consumerism, consumer culture. So it's not good enough to just talk about um, uh, romanticism. You got to do theology, uh, which is what Gene, he's not a, he's not a theologian. And so he's kind of leaving that to the theologians. Now, you probably know this, but Mike, I know Mike knows it, but that's what uh, the big debate with, with the German romantics was with Novalis and his book, Christendom or Europe, right? Where it was left unpublished when he died. And, and he died when he was only 30 or something, 29 or 30 when he died. And uh, I think, I can't remember which of his friends was going to publish it, but they, they didn't want to publish what he was really said because it was so pro-Catholic, so, yeah. <laughs> so Christian. We, he was kind of nostalgic for the Middle Ages, but it was, it, and, and it was always thought, thought you know, I mean, he was looking Goethe, so Goethe, the end of Faust, right, with the, the Mater Gloriosa, the, the Virgin, the Divine Feminine that leads us ever onward, which is about as Catholic a notion as you can get. Um, and Novalis was heading in that, was already writing in that direction, but died before it could happen. So it's interesting. And, 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 but on the other side, you see Schiller, who kind of went toward nationalism, right? Yeah. yeah and right. so, so that, that was why in my book, uh, The Submerged Reality, uh, I called it the, the Noble Failure of Romanticism. 
Ah, well, you must have had an yeah. interesting conversation with Makara then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were, you know, as people are, we're so taken with this writing and like the vast majority of this book is so needed that I don't, and we're not afraid of ever taking umbrage with people, but the, um, <laughs> but the, uh, um, I did that come up, Michael, not as clearly as it might have. No, not, we didn't get that explicit about it. Yeah. But uh, I mean, that's, but, but, but I feel like, I'm go ahead. Yeah. Interested in, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pro romanticism, but in the way I just described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, me too. I mean, right. It's just like, yeah. Which which romanticism? Yeah, that's the exactly. that's question, right? Yeah. Well, just like I, anything, you, you can look at the Catholic Church and say the same thing. Which Catholic Church? Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. But Bill, yeah, you know your 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 quote um, that you just kind of called to memory. You know, it's I only singled out. You know, when we're talking about idolatry, you know, it's going to tie in. Michael's work on sophiology is going to have a lot of phenomenology, you know, but um, it's, you know, for the listeners too, if the problem is disenchantment, then a more general concept of sacramentality is perhaps sufficient. If the problem is misenchantment, then the specification of which divinity will take on a greater urgency. That's the quote you were calling to mind, but that is, it's yeah. seminal. And I think, you know, when I was in grad school and I, I don't know, maybe it was, it was like a super progressive place back then. But sacramental theology did focus on the kind of the seven plus two, you know, the human nature of Jesus and the church as sacrament. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, I think when, again, I'm going to go back to the, the Eucharistic revival, there's a lot of talk of sacraments, but it's those seven, you know, because seven's a really cool number, seven, 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 seven. <laughs> but, you know, without understanding the, those seven's uh, origination in the sacramentality of this different, you know, ecclesial project called the church, um, I think we're kind of stuck in some of these old, old apologetics. But, you know, say even a little bit more about if the problem is disenchantment, then a more general concept of sacramentality is perhaps sufficient. If the problem is misenchantment, then specification of which divinity will say more about that. I think it's very hinge. It's hinge. Yeah. So um, the idea that Weber put forth um, not very aggressively and just in a few places was that, you know, we live in a kind of disenchanted world. And I try to show that um, not only is that not true, but Weber himself didn't even uh, believe that. He talked about the way that, um, you know, the capital and the state kind of take on this life of their own and come to react back uh, against us and oppress us. And kind of, he talks about you know, many old gods ascend from their graves. Uh, that's why I wanted to name the book "Many Old Gods," but Oxford mm. University Press changed it on me. Um, uh, bastards! So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So we can run um, them down pretty. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got some problems with you people. <laughs> <laughs> so disenchantment is not the problem, right? It's it's a misenchantment, which is a, a term that. Um, uh, McCarraher uses, which I think is exactly right, right, that it's, um, it, it's just falsely enchanted, um, you know, capitalism is full of its own enchantments and so on. Um, but if that's the case, then it seems to me like he's going to need to do better than just appealing to romanticism and the, uh, the kind of instilling this sense of divinity in, in the material world because that's what the marketers are already doing, right? And so, um, and, and you know, I mean, this is at the end of a 900 page book or whatever, so you can't, you can't fault him too much for, um, for not 
you know, giving us a, a full account of what the alternative to this is, but he gestures towards this kind of sacramental world, but he's trying to be as ecumenical as possible. And so he calls on the romantics to, you know, if for something that would appeal, not just to Christians, but to other people. And I think that's all, uh, that's all great. Um, but ultimately you're going to need to ask the question of which God are we talking about here? And so I make a case for the incarnate God. Yep. Um, that's actually that, that's that's the same point I made in the submerged reality is that as well, that was the noble failure, is they couldn't. Oh, is that right? Okay. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't ground it in the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Michael, but like, so remember last week when we had Eric Wilson on, but you know, we, we were talking about, you know, that from the beginning, the hurly burly, you know, everything's mixed up. You know, the mafia is mixed up with the founding fathers, not the Italian mafia, but like interests are, you know, and so then we create these myths of the, the founding and so forth. But all of a sudden, we're this guy was brilliant, Bill. You know, you'll see that podcast. It's worth listening to. The The main guest there had some audio problems. We'll see how damaging they are. But the uh, all of a sudden, Michael's like, what's left? And the guy goes like, suicide. He's not a nihilist. He's an Orthodox Christian. But again, you're <laughs> Your ecclesiology, and I'm so grateful you mentioned the Ecclesia Project, because again, like you're you're not devoid of hope. You know, you're you're saying this thing happened. It's there. You know, we can rebuild the church. Um, I forget what I was gonna ask uh Michael, but it's the um um Is it about Eric? Maybe, maybe. It was about like um, you know, the, how how kind of deadening that was, and this sounds so much different. Um <laughs> Uh, I guess I did it not too many times, but I lost my train of thought on that. Yeah, suicide's not a good thing. That, that was no. not an option. Was, mm-hmm. I just want to say. But, and, and it's interesting, though. I mean, what you're saying, Bill, and what Gene was, how he ends his book. I mean, it's kind of a stumbling toward, not you, but I think we're, what we're all seeing in this is we want an experience of the sacred, Right. And I mean, I think it's just innate in human beings. You want that, right? Um, and in my work in sociology is, you know, it's deeply connected to the arts and creation. That's part of the reason I'm a, I'm a farmer is, and uh, where you can, you can see, you can see the goodness of creation you can, and you can see, uh, you know, Sophia or, you know, God shining through the wisdom of God shining through and and people want that and that's what I think when people contact me after they read my books like that's what I'm looking for and, yeah. but I think um you make these brilliant points that that there's so much in our culture that is anti that <laughs> you know <laughs> that, that it's hard to find right well, and then how I think are you anti anti that anti, yeah this is kind of tricky yeah 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 <laughs> so he's an anti-anti-communist he's an anti-anti-capitalist he's always anti-anti am i anti that yeah, yeah. Um, whatever it is i'm against it that's right but uh so where was i going now i'm losing my trap train of thought no so uh but you were when you're talking about idolatry i mean and the the active part of idolatry is fundamentalism, right? Right. That's one of the people, one of people the have guys, to right? defend or what their Owen Barfield basis. called a literalism, a literalism, right? Yeah. I mean, we all want an experience of the sacred and the divine, but we all want it on our own terms, right? And that's what idolatry is. 
it's a it's what Marion calls a, the low water mark of the divine. It's a it's a genuine searching for the divine, but it's a wanting that divine or 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 not being capable of some, anything else. It's wanting that on our own terms right. or twisting it into our own terms. It, that's when it, it it inevitably kind of comes reacts back against us to right. to oppress us, right? Yeah. And that's what's wonderful. I, I really inspiring to me about Marion's work is, you know, showing how the same the same object could be either an idol or an icon. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking too of uh, you know, if we're if we're talking about kind of this reenchantment or the correct enchantment, um, this notion, you know, so we you know we need. Uh, we need aesthetic disciplines that people can kind of look at things and see again, a tree, a tree is an icon. Um, there's certain things in mass culture, you know, uh, maybe those pieces of writing produced by, you know, uh, uh, chat GPT, um, you know, but uh, Bill, like, what do you think is the, you know, I, I tend to think when we come to this watershed, you know, that we need to train people in sociology and a sacramental view of the world. You know, I tend to think we probably need to tie, again, higher ed to some type of ascetical self-discipline, which isn't necessarily daily mass, but daily mass at its best is a training in this type of vision. But um, in addition to, you know, I always think a complimentary one, uh, over the weekend, my wife and I finally watched that movie, The Jesus Revolution. Have you guys seen it? I, I just watched it last week. Yeah, It's pretty cool that the guy ended up being a narcissist, right? Because we're all, we're watching uh -huh. him and he's kind of cool, but we're like, are these, are the directors like so stupid that they don't see that this guy's kind of annoying. Do they think this guy's really cool? But it's based on, you know, so it's a, it's a little Resort, bit of a subtle yeah. movie. But again, in the 60s, this is a this is a, a, a point that Ivan Illich makes in his essay, Philosophy, Friendships, and Artifacts, right? Because artifacts are not sacramental. But the, um, or I mean, the way he's using them. But he said, as the 60s generation thirsted for justice, you know, and it's kind of there in that movie, but also just, and he, you know, there's a real thirst. When we look at the Catholic Church right now, and Illich, I think he wrote this, I forget what year, but he knew it was it was starting to come. And this is what I can say from, say, 25 years in campus ministry. As the 60s generation thirsted for justice, what young people are thirsting for now is friendship, right? And I, I have a feeling that, because we're talking a lot about the church, you know, and the church is kind of, and the Eucharist, this new social body coming to life. And when I, you know, when we come to this kind of place where we all are about Bill's work, McCarraher's work, Illich's work, uh, we, we've had Mark Vernon on talking about William Blake. You know, when we say like, what are we going to do? I've had, and I've said this a couple of times, I use it with a lot of young people, but, um, and I've mentioned at least five times on this, that for me, young people in an era where they're so anxious and out of control, they're using so much of what the church has to offer, whether they're ortho bros or rad treads or somewhat in between, but they're collecting arcana. They're collecting um, kind of mystic stuff. And, you know, and the church is loving this saying, oh, this is the sacred. And I'm starting to get allergic to that because these same people who are collecting all this knowledge that Maximus the Confessor said this, mm -hmm. and there's these sacramentals, none of them have friends. And they're using this to create, it's just, it's out of loneliness and they collect all this data. And a lot of it's for posturing. How much esoteric lore can you accumulate? <laughs> so I think, you know, that's the easy path, but the two paths the church needs to take is leading people into friendship. We all know there's you know, a loneliness epidemic, the likes we've never seen, but also is there an ascetic discipline that can teach people phenomenology? We had a couple of weeks ago, he was fabulous, Bill. Martin Shaw, is that a name you're familiar with? 
Uh-huh. He's a storyteller in a in Great Britain, and he's running with the likes of Paul Kingsnorth, who we've had on the show, and some others. And Martin Shaw is kind of a recent convert uh, to Orthodoxy again, right, Michael? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was, uh, I was asking him, like, we have a local grad school, St. Bernard's, which you're familiar with, I think you're in the diocese, Bill. Um, and uh, they were in my new position. They were going to ask me, like, what they can do. And we asked this guy, Martin Shaw, and he said, teach phenomenology teach phenomenology and his his ascetical self-discipline is like you know bill this weekend come up with 12 secret names for a tree outside your house he's starting to get at something don't you think with this idea of idolatry well well, that to me i mean that was you know discovering that phenomenology if you look at the, the great phenomenologists of the 20th century they all came to a religious turn or maybe not all but most of them came to a religious turn because something happened, right? And you and you even see that and, and with Derrida, of all people, who I read one, one, I think it was a conference or something where he said, I'm just trying to do phenomenology as honestly as possible. That's what, and, and even at the end of his, his career, it, like you would, you know, you could definitely, there's a way to, to say what he was, he was moving toward apophatic theology, right? Yeah. And but you see that in Marion, you see it in John Paul II, you see, you know, Edith Stein, you know, Husserl, they all, they all get there, <laughs> you know, and I think it's, and, and, and that's the thing, you know, and I try, I, when I, when I'm in the classroom, which is not very often, I try to get students to learn how to pay attention. I mean, to even if they just notice, if I, one of the one thing I would often do is I would. One time, I happened to have a piano in the classroom, uh, right where I was assigned, and so I played uh, on on the screen on the on the the public address system. I played uh, the Beatles' "Hey Jude," and then I played it on the piano and sang. And I certainly don't sing as well as Paul McCartney. And I said, "What's the difference?" And they've never thought about that and, they, and then I did it played it again and they 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 saw what was which one was more alive and mm-hmm. it spoke to them you know and it, and it's, it wasn't like a great performance or anything but just that experience where if we don't learn how to pay attention to what is before us and I think this is one of the probably one of the beautiful no I, I'm not a person who does this but I think this is the people who are drawn to Eucharistic adoration for instance that's probably what, what they're doing, right? Yeah, interesting. Some are just so severely OCD, right? I mean, again, it's just, I happen to know, if you take if you take adoration at the church and the college students, some are there, yes. And it, I, we think it can lead to that, but it we, we also have the scrupulosity. But like, you know, I think almost to kind of tie this back, let's say Bill Kavanaugh, the, um, we, we've all kind of agreed to a narrative of like, you know, misenchantment, um, your work, uh, on the migration of the holy is doing something like the naked public square thing, right? And so we have all these different streams coming together, and this post-liberal option has become a you know a real live one. It's going to be, I can see, I couldn't fault people for young guys if they're just going to go that way because they're seeing through something, and it's a, probably an easy solution to a complex problem. What and maybe, and I've played a lot with your book. Again, we want to have you on again when your book comes out. What do you think the church could be doing now? And we've talked a lot about the Eucharistic revival, like kind of practically you as Bill Kavanaugh, what do you think we can do with young people or just with the church? 
Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, huge. But one of the things that I found um, works pedagogically is an exercise in asceticism. I've taught a course on Christianity and consumer culture, and we do an experiment where for three weeks we give up um, meat and sugar and sex and tobacco and um, all kinds of uh, uh, cell phones and internet usage and all of these different ascetic practices for a, a three-week period. And the students who survive it, um, it's a voluntary thing, uh, find it life-changing. You know, there's one young woman who said she hadn't heard birds chirp in years uh, and then, you know, went around without her earbuds in. And, and this, was, this was a revelation. Um, a friend of mine recently was teaching uh, St. Vincent of DePaul, and the students really liked his attention to the poor, but they were really turned off by this idea that he spent four hours in prayer every morning. And so um, one of the, to one of the students who was making this objection, my colleague said, you've got an iPhone, right? And she said, yeah. I said, it's got one of those things that can track how much you've used it in the last week. Right, so they called it up, and she had spent yeah. thirty-five hours on her iPhone over the last week. That's a good one. Like, ah, a part-time job. Yeah. That's how you can spend four hours in prayer. Um, so yeah, I mean, some kind of uh, ascetic practice mixed with um, a sort of um, attention to people in need. Um, I think that uh, is incredibly appealing. Do you think uh, this? We had a we had a great guest on. I think he's the best new writer at Front Porch Republic, and he uh, he went after Deneen too. If you if you kind of Google it, his name is Adam Smith, and um, not that Adam Smith. <laughs> no, not yeah, not that, not that. Um, but the uh, he he too at his uh, maybe what was the name of his university in Iowa? Do you remember, Mike Michael? It was really small, but anyhow, he was going to, he had a dorm and he was going to do something similar, um, you know, living uh, techno fast for about three weeks or so forth. Do you see this as growing, Bill? Could it, do you think it could possibly be something that would hit critical mass? I'm not talking about like a program that gets a brand name or anything, but uh, I, we're glad to see people trying it. Do you think it has real momentum? Um, I don't see any momentum, yeah, uh, okay. but, um, but it should, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think people uh, take to it like ducks to water, you know, um, yeah. it's just it's a return to a more natural kind of life. Right. I mean, we we've have forgotten how artificial it is yeah. to have this thing, you know, to walk around staring at the palm of our hand all day long. Um, it, that it seems mandatory now, but it's so unnatural. And Absolutely. so recent that to be returned to our senses, um, I think, is something that um, that certainly could uh, take yeah. off when people have had enough. Yeah, enough place to start. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think you know when you, when your book comes out, people ask you presumably kind of a lot about that too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's right. I mean, so the last chapter is kind of about. Um, both an aesthetics and an ethics of this um, kind of renunciation of, or, or the attempt to move away from idolatry 
anyway. And I think both of those things can't just be an, an aesthetic, an aesthetic thing. No, uh, right. It can't just be the way, you know, our sensibilities are, but it has to also be an ethical thing. It has to be, you know, uh, an attention to people that suffer from the kind of uh, idolatrous systems that we we support and create. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about like, um, and I think you do unpack this in your book, but, you know, we want to we want to train people to see God in things, but not to make a God of things. Right. You know, so um, for Coventry Patmore, the basic sacramental thing would be, you know, a woman, you know, a woman is more than a woman. A loaf of bread is more than a loaf of bread. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's things, Bill, that just aren't capable of that? And in your book, do you kind of like separate these things, you know, that these things that have no poetry behind them, you know? <laughs> um, are there things in life that have no poetry behind them? Yeah. I think yes. so. I think there is. Okay. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. How how do you go about training young people to uh um to make these distinctions, you know? I mean, you just show them things that have poetry in them and yeah. you know, so people recognize what's good. Yeah. Overlaps a lot with your project, don't you think, Michael? I certainly does. <laughs> very, very closely. So, Bill, can't thank you enough. Again, your uh, um, your unassuming manner, which is the opposite of boring, I think, uh, <laughs> kind of it hides the fact that sometimes uh, it's not. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just plain boring. <laughs> it, it hides the fact of how radical and consistent, and you know, quite a revolutionary body of work um, that you have. Uh, again, I think you're lighting dynamite with every book you do, and. Um, uh, you know, so glad you could join us. Would you be willing to join us again when your book comes out? We'd like to showcase it. I, I would be delighted to. Yeah, I know this yeah. is really fun. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Conversation. Okay, great. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We will uh, keep on lining up these great guests, and we'll see everybody again next week. <laughs>